0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, I was hopeful that uh, before my last day on June 19th, that I would get through the book of Corinthians. Um, and I was trying to piece together and look at how I could do every uh, all of these chapters... Uh, one chapter at a time, maybe even combine a chapter or two, and it's impossible. There's so much in these last few chapters. And so um, I'm not going to be able to get through uh, 1 Corinthians before June 19th. So I'm, I'm prayerfully hoping that I can come back and fill in at times and continue studying the book of 1 Corinthians with y'all uh, and, uh, and share with y'all the, the great news that, that Paul shares with the people of uh, Corinth and finish the book. So, uh, This morning, uh, we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 22. And let me remind you, this is God's good and kind and gracious word that he has given to his people. It's his authoritative word that we are to sit under, uh, to be challenged, to be convicted, but also the word that he has given us so that we can be encouraged by it. Uh, So uh, hear this word today. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for him to help us understand this word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we can know the truth, that we can be challenged by your word, uh, that we can be taught how to flee from idolatry and flee from uh, sin uh, and taught how to flee to Christ. Lord, I thank you for Jesus who is with us, who cares for us, and I pray that that now, by the Spirit of Christ, that we might understand this word, uh, that you would make it clear to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's two types of people in this room. There's uh, one type likes history, and the other type doesn't like history. I mean, that's just how it goes. Some people like it, some people don't. It's my experience that people who don't like history, don't like history probably because... More than likely because they had a terrible history professor or teacher at some point. Now good teachers, and this is true of every subject, what every good teacher does is a good teacher will tell you why the subject matter that they are teaching is important for you to learn. And they'll reiterate that point. This is why it's important over and over. They'll make that point all the time. Uh, Well, I I happen to be somebody that loves history. I studied history in college. I was a history major. I still enjoy history. Uh, And one of the reasons why I enjoy it is because uh, as a pastor, it's important for you to know, it's important for me to tell you that Christianity is a historical religion. That you cannot have Christianity without having history. Because the doctrines that we believe in, the theology that we hold to, is based upon actual historical fact and the events that have happened in history. And oftentimes whenever the writers of the New Testament or even the prophets of the Old Testament and the writers of the Old Testament are going through and they're explaining the theology, they are using and going back to the periods in history that help them and help undergird the theological points that they're making. And that's exactly what Paul is doing today in this passage. He points the people of Corinth, the Christians of Corinth, back to their history as Christians, back to the Old Testament. And he says, remember what happened back then. He points them to their history, and he wants them to learn from their history. So this morning, uh, I I want you to uh, learn from this history because Paul wants them to learn from it and the same applications can be given to us. I want to look at this passage in three ways this morning. First of all, we're going to see the historical lesson, kind of the overarching lesson that Paul wants to to make uh, in verses 1 through 5. And then secondly, we're going to see the historical examples that he gives to undergird that lesson in verses 6 through 13. Uh, And then finally... Uh, He's going to give the historical application in uh, verses 14 through 22. So the very first thing we're going to see, the historical lesson that Paul wants to teach them. And it's not just one lesson. I'm going to try to condense it down to one thing for you to take away. But there's a lot going on in these few verses. Look at what Paul says there in verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Um, There's some huge, hugely important um, historical things, but hugely important, um, Julian used a big word today, hermeneutical things that are happening here. Hermeneutics is the study of how you interpret uh, the Word of God. Uh, it's, It's the theology of interpretation. Uh, and what Paul is doing is he's providing some hermeneutical clues or keys to unlocking the way that we should understand the Old Testament in saying this. Look at what he says, and remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Gentile and Jewish converts to Christianity. The Gentiles coming from a pagan background, and then some of the Jews in the church at Corinth as well. But how does he combine all of them together? What does he say? I want you to know brothers, first of all, saying that we're all in this together. We're all one family, Jew and Gentile alike. And then he says that our fathers were all under the cloud. He takes all of the Gentiles and all of the Jews and he says we are all in the same family. And he points back to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, to the ancient Jews when they were being brought out of the, uh, of the land of Egypt in the Exodus event. And he's saying... That is all of our history. That is all of us. That was written down for all of us. That we are all in that family of faith going all the way back to the Old Testament. Jew and Gentile alike. That today the church is the continuation of what is the Old Testament church is Israel in the Old Testament. And so now we're all combined in that. They are our fathers. They are your fathers in the faith as well. And what did they do? What happened to them? Well, he says, they all went under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What what is he talking about there? Well, clearly he's talking back and pointing back to the Exodus event coming out of the land of Egypt and all of the exciting things that happened in the first few chapters of the book of Exodus. When God went into Egypt and subdued the Pharaoh and subdued the gods of the Egyptians... And miraculously brought them out of Egypt by providing for them a cloud that he shrouded them in, that he covered them over in. The shroud was his glory, and he brought them out of Egypt in that cloud. And then they're told, we're told that they were baptized. They went through the Red Sea, and they were baptized into Moses. So he's making a connection in this with um, with. The baptism that we experience in Jesus Christ today, and he's he's kind of making a correlation between the baptism that they went to in Moses with our own baptism into Jesus Christ today. He's combining these things together. And then he goes on and he talks about them um, uh, at verse 3, and they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Well, Finally here in chapter 10 he's about to begin dealing with some of the issues of the Lord's Supper that they were uh, uh, um, they were mishandling in Corinth and so he's beginning to introduce these ideas to them by referring back to the Old Testament to say that just as we take the spiritual food of Christ in the Lord's Supper, same way that we were baptized into Christ and we have that baptism, we now have this spiritual food that we partake in that we We eat Jesus spiritually, and really, they did the same thing in the Old Testament. That's incredible. It's incredible to think that the things that they were experiencing back then, eating and drinking, we experience today. There's a lot of times where we will say things like, if I lived back then in the Exodus, if I experienced the things that they experienced I would know for sure. I would have this solid foundation of faith that I would trust Jesus better than I trust him today. And what Paul is implying here is the experience that they had back then is the same thing that we have. We have the same benefits that they have. Now, yes, we don't see this cloud and we're not watching the the Red Sea being parted every day or anything like that. We're not experiencing those sorts of things, but we have the benefits that they had. They ate Christ spiritually just as we eat Christ spiritually in the Lord's Supper. In other words they had the means of grace that we have. It's an incredible thing to think about that what they experienced is the same thing that we experience today. Now we need to learn from this because he's going back and he's saying this is the history of God's people. Just as it used to be for them, it's the same for us and then uh, same for us He's saying to the, the Corinthians and now even to us the same application. They were eating and drinking Christ. Um, that's an amazing thing to think about. Now, he goes on to say some other really important things. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. you remember a few minutes ago we read in the book of Exodus where Moses struck the rock? Well, Paul is looking back on that event and he is saying, well, guess what? They drank from Christ. The rock was Christ. That they were nourished by Christ in that. But then there's a warning that comes in verse 5. And this is the historical lesson. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, notice it doesn't say that um, they did not please God. That's an interesting way that Paul phrases this. He says, with most of them, God was not pleased. Because Paul wants to make sure we understand that God is the primary actor in history. That God is the one that is sovereignly in control. That yes, the people in the ancient days, the people of God in the ancient days, were um, sinful humans and they did displease God. But God is the primary actor and he was not pleased with them and what was the result that four that comes at the end of verse 5 needs to be this is what happened to them they were overthrown in the desert i don't know why our english translators translate that word overthrown because in the in the greek it actually means they were humbled they were made to be uh, to be humbled before the lord it's not just that they were overthrown or they died in the desert which is what happened but that they were humbled in the desert. And that's kind of the main historical lesson. That's the main thing that he wants them to understand. He's been teaching the Corinthians about their own idolatry and their own uh, lack of faith, their own pride. He's been teaching them about all of these things. And he says, you need to learn a lesson from history. Just as the people of God in the old days were under the cloud and were baptized into Moses and they ate and drank the same spiritual drink uh, that we have guess what happened to them? The the Lord wasn't pleased with them, and they were overthrown in the desert. Be careful. Here's your warning. You can come to church week after week after week. You can participate in the means of grace that God has graciously given to his people. You can partake in the Lord's Supper, and spiritually, or or you you can think you're partaking in Jesus Christ, and yet, not be a member of Jesus, not be part of the people of God, just as they were in the Old Testament. And you may be in danger of being overthrown by God, of being humbled before God. There's a warning, and he says, be careful, be careful. All right? So that's the application to us. If God was displeased with them, he most certainly can be displeased with us. The main thing is they refused to be humbled before God they lacked faith they didn't trust in the Lord so are you humble before God or are you in danger of being overthrown in our current wilderness first thing the the historical lesson secondly we see the historical examples that he gives now uh, he actually gives four examples here and he connects four different types of sin that all have the root in the same sin, and I'll uh, I'll try to do this um, fairly quickly. Um, four examples of the failures of our fathers in the wilderness. Um, now, why did these things take place? Verse six, he tells you why these things took place. Look at verse six. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This is incredible history. Why have the events of God's people taken place the way that they did? Why did the Old Testament events take place? Why did all of that stuff happen? Well, there's lots of different reasons why that happened. The first reason is for the glory of God. Why does anything happen? Well, it happens because it brings glory to God. That's the first answer to that. And there's other reasons why things happen. But Paul says if you want to, have, uh, if you want to understand your Old Testament here, you need to understand that all of this happened to be an example to you. And then it's a negative example, but it's an example. The lives of those people are for your benefit. That when God was sovereignly, providentially bringing these people through the desert, he had you in mind as he was doing that thousands of years ago. That's incredible to think about. That God has did that to them for your benefit. So if God did that, And he has been working all of history out for your benefit. Don't you think you need to pay attention to it? Don't you think you need to listen and pay attention to what was going on? Well, yes, you need to pay attention to this. So what are the four things that happen? I'll just give you the kind of the the, uh, overarching sin that uh, he talks about in these things. The the four examples, the four things are idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, testing of God, and grumbling against God. Uh, The first one he says, uh, these things took place that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, verse 7. So where were the people of God in that period of time in the wilderness idolaters? Well, they were idolaters throughout, but there's the one period specifically in Exodus 32, the golden calf episode, where Moses is up on the mountains and the people go, he's gone, he's left us, Aaron, make us something that we can worship. And Aaron obliges them and he makes them a golden calf that just happened to be one of the gods that they worshipped in Egypt. It's idolatry. They bowed down and worshipped a different god. Secondly, immorality. Numbers 25. Um, If you want an exciting book to read, go read Numbers. It's incredibly exciting. There's There's some parts in there that you go, well, that didn't seem very exciting. But then you get things like uh, Numbers 25 when the people decide uh, that they've they've had it with worshiping Yahweh and they just don't want to do that anymore. They start interacting with the Moabites and they go, let's just start worshiping Baal along with them. And it just so happens that the worship of Baal included sexual immorality and visiting prostitutes and that sort of thing. And so the people, primarily the men, decided that's what they were going to do. And so many of them went and did that God was angry with them uh, and uh, 25 what is it, 23,000 of them died in a single day because of their immorality. Going on from there, he talks about, we must not put verse nine, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, meaning in the Old Testament, Prior to them understanding and knowing who the Messiah would be, he says, even back then, they were putting the Messiah to the test. They were testing him. Why? Because Jesus Christ is God, He is Yahweh. He was with them in the wilderness, and they put him to the test. And what did they do? Well, they were destroyed by serpents. I love that episode, Numbers chapter 21 with the bronze serpent where they're grumbling and complaining about Moses and about their leaders and they're complaining about God and the food that they have. You know, just your average everyday grumbling and complaining. They just don't like how God has situated things for them. And so God says, okay, that's fine. And he sends serpents among them and all the people start getting bitten by serpents and they go crawling to Moses saying, pray for us, pray for us. And God says, fine, I'm going to heal you. Moses, make a bronze serpent, stick it on a tall pole, and if they look at the serpent, they'll be healed. That's wild. That's crazy stuff. Well, why do they do that? Because if you get bit by a serpent, what do you need? You need medical attention. And God says, no, actually what you need is faith. The very thing that they lacked. Looking at the serpent required faith. And so he says, look at the serpent and you'll be healed. Numbers 21, why did God send them, those serpents? Because they tested him. They grumbled and complained against God. And then the last thing, the last thing that he talks about is, of course, uh, just straight on grumbling in Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers 16, they grumble and complain against God again. And what does God do? Uh, He sends a plague among them. But he calls it the destroyer. The destroyer goes among them. And this is the same destroyer that God sent among the Egyptians to kill the firstborn, the plague of the firstborn. You see, what we learn from this is that God's people deserve death just as those, in, uh, uh, those of the Egyptians deserve death, deserve death. And so God sends the destroyer among them, a plague among them because they grumble and complain. Why? Because they lack faith. I want you to think about all of these things. Now, why, why did they practice immorality? Why did they practice idolatry? Why did they grumble and complain and put God to the test? I think it makes sense to us about why they did that. The man who had been telling them about God was up on a mountain for 40 days. They had heard nothing from him, and they don't know what to do. And so they start saying, well, we need to practice our religion somehow or another, I know, let's fall back on the things we used to do. It kind of makes sense about why they did that, right? And then you think about it. Well, what about um, uh, uh, the second thing, immorality? Well, it you know all they were doing is just looking around at the culture around them and saying, well, this is what the culture does. This is how they worship, and it just kind of makes sense. We should worship the way that, that they worship. It works for them. Why wouldn't it work for us? And then the grumbling and complaining... I mean, do you realize that they lived in the desert for 40 years? Do you know what's in the desert? Nothing. (laughs) They had nothing. They didn't have water. They didn't have food. They were hungry. They were tired. They didn't have showers. They smelled terrible. Um, No toothbrushes or toothpaste or any of those things. Uh, None of the modern conveniences that we have um, you know, it's like, well, they couldn't just stop at the grocery store to get food. What, they were absolutely dependent upon God to give them food. So, so can you understand why they might grumble and complain? Sure you can. Why? Because you grumble and complain when you have a buggy full of stuff at Walmart and you've got a line that you got to wait in for three minutes. You understand grumbling and complaining, and you have way less than they have. We grumble and complain all of the time. And here's the point. If they were in danger of displeasing God, how much more so are we? Because I don't know if you realize this, but we don't live in the desert. We have air conditioner. You have nice, comfortable seats to sit in here. Here. And even more comfortable when you go back home to your beautiful homes that you have situated exactly how you like it to be, exactly the way it's supposed to be. You are comfortable. And then what is the first thing that you do when you get home? You grumble and complain about every little thing that doesn't go your way. If God was displeased with them and they had nothing, what do you think that says about you and your heart and what you deserve? Are you learning from history? I hope that you're paying attention to these things. What does Paul say? He says, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's that problem of humility. Be very careful. In your grumbling and complaining about how things are going in your life, it may very well be that you think you have the right to grumble and complain before God, that you think you have the right to stand before Him in your own skin, in your own righteousness, and that He better bend His will to you. Be very careful. So Paul tells the Corinthians, who didn't have nearly the comforts that we have even still, but had it better off than the ancient Israelites. He says, take heed Lest you fall. Same warning he gives to us. You might be very close to falling. But what's the hope? Well, he goes on in in verse 12 and this, or verse 13, um, often misunderstood taken out of context quote no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it we often take that to mean that if we are tempted with sin that um that when we're being tempted that there's That God uh, kind of pops up a little escape hatch, you know. And so while we're walking down this road to sin, that there's this little escape hatch that if we would just look over to the left or to the right and open that door, we can escape the sin. That's not really what Paul has in mind here. What Paul is saying is that God has provided the way of escape. The way. Like I preached a couple of weeks ago on the way, the truth, and the life. That the way of escape is through Jesus Christ. That he is the path that we should be walking on. And that's the whole point. That we are called to live our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. To not live our lives for the sake of our own idolatry. For the sake of our own immorality. For the sake of the things that we want. We are to live our lives for his sake. He has given us Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the way. Of escape. The last thing he gives historical application to uh, the uh, Corinthians. He says, therefore, he kind of concludes it all. He says, since all of these things are true, what should you do, my beloved? Flee from idolatry. Run away from idolatry. And what Paul is saying is that all of these sins, all of the things that were going on with the ancient Israelites, really were a result of their idolatry. And what Paul does is he roots all sin. In idolatry. Well, what is idolatry? Idolatry is the first commandment where God says, You shall have no other gods before me. And essentially what Paul is teaching in this is that all sin flows from idolatry. And ultimately, Adam's sin as well was idolatry. It was disobedience to God. But what did Adam and Eve think whenever they took the fruit in disobedience to God? They wanted to be like God. They thought they could make their own decisions. They thought, God can't tell me what to do. I want to tell myself what to do. And so I'm going to put myself in the place of God. That's idolatry. What Paul says is, therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, my beloved people, flee, run from idolatry, run from this. When you grumble and complain, what you're doing is you're saying, I know what's best for me in every situation. And I know that this situation is not what I deserve. What you're doing is you're putting yourself in the place of God. So be careful about that. Flee from that idolatry. What you're saying is, I am God. And you're worshiping yourself. Paul says, run away from that. Flee from that. If you're going through some kind of suffering today, while suffering is bad, God is using that suffering for His sake to get you to lessen your grip on the things of this world, to increase your grip upon Him, to bring you to your knees, to worship Him. Paul's antidote to this idolatry, this, this tendency that we have to idolatry, is to think about the Lord's Supper. It's an incredible thing that he, he says. When was the last time you thought about the Lord's Supper in trying to flee from sin? You probably don't do that, but Paul says, well, think about what happens in the Lord's Supper. You are participating with the Lord in the Lord's Supper. There's a union that's happening. There's a a picture of the union, and then something... Uh, incredible is happening in the Lord's Supper. You're participating with Christ as you're taking the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. We all partake of one bread. And he goes on to explain to them that if you are participating in idolatry and also participating in the Lord's Supper, you're joining together Jesus Christ with other gods. And he says, you can't do that. You need to think about who you are in Christ, that he has accomplished this union of you with himself and your union with other people. And it's this incredible thing. Think about it. Be renewed in your mind. Flee from idolatry and flee to Christ. He goes on to talk about this this whole idea of eating um, uh, meat sacrifice to idols and that was how he began this in chapter 8 because some people said it's no big deal and he says if you think it's no big deal you need to realize what you're doing if you're not really thinking through what you're doing if your conscience hasn't been informed about these things and you're combining Jesus Christ with the demon and you cannot and you should not do that flee from idolatry flee from temple worship flee from pagan worship and you say well we, we're not pagans. We don't have pagan temples anywhere around us. We're not surrounded by pagans. Oh, yes, we are. We are surrounded by pagans everywhere we go. We are surrounded by temples everywhere that we go. A couple of years ago, I was driving some people through Baton Rouge, and I was showing them the campus of LSU, and I had them, we were on Highland Road, and, and I had them look over to the right, and there you saw um, Tiger Stadium in the distance. Beautiful Majestic Tiger, Tiger Stadium, as the sun was going down, right behind the stadium, it it was incredible. And I said, "That's the largest church that we have in the state of Louisiana." There's a hundred thousand people that gather there for worship. And they said, "Really? What's the name of the church?" And I said, "It's the LSU football team." What's happening Saturday night? It's worship. How often are we bowing the knee to all of these other idols that we have? Sports, family. Money, our bank accounts, bowing the knee to these other idols, meanwhile maintaining and trying to pretend that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we trust in Jesus. We make our temples out of so many things. They actually had temples that they know to knew to avoid. But we participate in all of these things and give our heart to these things, thinking that it's okay to give our heart to everything, and then also on Sunday mornings to give our heart to Christ. We need to be careful lest we fall. In conclusion, uh, this is for you and for me. This is for all of us to understand that our heart's tendency is to idolatry. Our heart's tendency is to run after and flee after everything but God. And at the center of that, we try to put ourselves, what's the antidote? How can we be cured of our idolatry? Well, we need to go back to the rock. We need to go back and think about Jesus Christ. In, in Exodus uh, chapter 17, where we, we were reading about that earlier. And I want you to go back and read it. The people are grumbling against God. They're complaining against God. They had just been brought out of Egypt, out of their slavery. And within a matter of days, they're saying, this isn't good. We don't like this, God. Why would you do this to us? And God says, I'm going to provide water for you. Moses, get your staff, get some of the elders, go stand in front of the rock. And what does he ask him to do? He says, strike the rock, hit the rock. And there's this little part in there that we oftentimes miss where God says, uh, and our English translators don't get this right. What God says is, I will be on the rock. I'm going to be there on the rock so that when you (laughs) strike the rock, you are striking God And when Moses strikes God, what flows from it? Living water. Water for them to drink. And they missed it. They missed that God was struck for them. God gave up his life so that they could live. God took the bruises that they deserved. The punishment that they deserved so that they could live and have water to drink. Jesus Christ is the rock. He was struck for us. What is your hope in this life? Your hope is that Jesus Christ was struck for you. Think on Jesus who gave his life that you can live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. We pray, Lord, that you would use it, that you would continue to teach us these lessons from history. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with the good news of Christ, that he is our rock who was struck for us. We pray all of these things in Christ's name, amen.